Johnny Gould's Jewish State, bringing Israel and the diaspora together. What has happened to American foreign policy since Joe Biden took the presidency from Donald Trump? Is every despot in the world emboldened by the shocking withdrawal from Afghanistan? Amid the fanfare of Israeli President Isaac Herzog's visit to the UK in November 2021, a critical message was delivered by Israel's head of state directly to the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, both publicly in the glare of the media and privately about Iran and the shortness of time over their enrichment of uranium, which makes nuclear weaponry. The final words I want to say is, of course, thank you very much for your resolution on proscribing Hamas. Yes. It's a very important message to terror organizations and those who are trying to radical and undermine the situation in the Middle East. And finally, as you're entering your negotiations with the P5 plus 1 on the Iranian nuclear situation, uh, we're looking forward for our allies and the P5 plus 1 to be as tough as possible because we do not believe that they are operating in a bona fide yep. manner. And I think uh, only if all, all options are on the table, things may move into the right direction. I, I, well, I thank you, Mr. President. I want to, uh, to echo very strongly a couple of, uh, of those points. And first of all, on Hamas, I think we took the right decision. It was a, a difficult and, and a controversial decision, but I think the right thing. And by the way, I think a decision that was almost immediately uh, vindicated uh, by the uh, appalling events that we saw in, yeah. uh, in, in Israel. Absolutely terrible, terrible thing. And your point about Iran is also is also well made. And I think that uh, we see a situation in which, in which the world uh, doesn't have much time. Uh, Thank you all very much. Thank you, everyone. The relationship between Jerusalem and London is burgeoning, as Neil Wigan, Her Majesty's Ambassador in Tel Aviv, told me. 20 years ago, I never would have imagined that relationships would be uh, as close as they are. I was down to the Ofta Air Force Base in southern Israel and saw um, six RAF fighters, which, as the head of the Israeli Air Force said, that's the most fighters you've had in Israel since you left in 1948. Um, I mean, it's a, a real depth of cooperation, which uh, has moved on a lot. And you mentioned as well Israel's global perception. So I think the perception of Israel has changed thanks a lot and thank, thanks to its technology. So Israel is providing the kind of technologies in everything from cyber to healthcare um, that countries around the world are really interested in and really need to help them solve their problems. And I think that's changed the, the world's perception of Israel and to some extent Israel's perception of itself in the world in a very positive way. While that with Washington is less sure-footed. As Michael Oren, Israel's former ambassador to the United States, told me in episode 65, the uncertainty which started during the presidency of Barack Obama has forced Israel out of the crib to seek alliances in a more multipolar world. Voices are raised in the progressive part of the Democratic Party saying we should use aid as a way of sort of arm-twisting or extorting Israel uh, Israel as a sovereign country in a tough neighborhood cannot afford to have the impression that it is weak and dependent and open to extortion. It's just not worth $3.8 billion per year. Uh, and there are many other restrictions there that, that, that seriously deplete the, 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 the worth of that $3.8 billion, not the least of which is the 
the significance of the aid was never the monetary significance of the aid. It was the message that this superpower stood behind the state of Israel. But with that superpower now in full retreat from the world, that message is a lot less you know, poignant than it was. Um, and there is a opportunity cost in that aid because we can't sell to whom we want. We can't buy what we want. Um, we ask for certain things. We don't get it. Uh, I know I was involved in asking for certain things. Uh, certain capabilities, and the United States said no. As round after round of talks between Iran and the USA take place in Vienna to restore the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, which President Donald Trump withdrew from in 2018, calling it the worst deal in American history, how can this serve anything but buying vital time and cover for Iran to continue its nuclear plans and then threaten Israel directly or via its proxies. It's time to check in with Johnny Gould's Jewish State's Israel correspondent, James Marlowe, for this latest episode of Israel Briefing 4. Israel Briefing. Johnny Gould's Jewish State's correspondent, James Marlowe, with the latest from the Knesset and beyond. It's not a secret that the United States struggled with their foreign policy achievements in 2021, and some have said there has been some catastrophic failures. The disastrous pullout of Afghanistan under fire, when American troops initially left behind thousands of embassy and NGO staff. Deteriorating relations with Russia, worsening ties with China, not knowing how to deal with North Korea, and an almost desperate attempt to enter into a fresh new nuclear deal with Iran. Joe Biden made it very clear before he was elected in November 2020 that he would make it a priority to reignite Barack Obama's JCPOA agreement. JCPOA stands for the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action and is also known as the Iran nuclear deal. It was an agreement reached in Vienna on the 14th of July 2015 between Iran and world powers known as the P5 plus 1. The United States, Russia, China, United Kingdom, France and Germany. And this agreement was endorsed by the United Nations Security Council. Iran's compliance with the deal was monitored by the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA. But many including the Donald Trump administration, thought it was a woefully inept agreement, or in Trump's words, the worst deal in American history. It gave Tehran billions of dollars, much of it in cash. Iran used the money to fund many of its Shiite militias in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq and Yemen, causing misery to millions of people as wars continue to rage in these countries. But it also allowed Tehran to continue to enrich uranium to a certain level, maintain and manufacture centrifuges, and build an unlimited number of international ballistic missiles. Michael Oren, Israel's former ambassador to the United States. We are still living with the JCPOA, but the irony perhaps of this is that it has oiled the wheels of the Abraham Accords. It has. I've often said that, uh, I used to tell Netanyahu this, we, we owe uh, Obama big thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we owe him thanks for, first of all, he, he threw us out of the nest. 
Israel used to be heavily dependent on the bilateral relationship with the United States, and we didn't really give much thought to the rest of the world. And I said, because of Obama, you ended up going to China, you ended up going to Japan, you ended up going to, to South America several times, Africa several times. You diversified our portfolio uh, because of Obama. Uh, Obama also sought to bring Arabs and Jews uh, closer through peace. Um, he succeeded just not through peace. He succeeded through our common opposition to his policies, particularly toward the policy toward Iran. And it's true. Uh, the Iran nuclear deal, coupled with the American withdrawal from the Middle East, uh, made Middle Eastern states that were dependent on the United States to defend them not just against Iran, but also against Islamic Sunni extremism, backed by Turkey, backed by Qatar, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. All of a sudden, America is a no-show. And what is that? what's left? The state of Israel, which opposes both Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, is powerful militarily. And very quickly on, the, these, uh, these Arab countries, these rulers, these governments, realized that the United States, Israel was not an enemy. Israel was the ally. And this was kind of the essential ally, not just any ally. And uh, now we have to see whether the United States wants to re-enter the Middle East uh, diplomatically at all, uh, to say nothing militarily, and whether the United States will throw its full weight upon about expanding the Abraham Accords to include other countries, principally uh, Saudi Arabia. I hope that will happen. In addition, according to the agreements, the IAEA did not have access to all of Iran's military facilities, and those they did have access to were simply being monitored by CCTV, which was sometimes turned off by the Iranians. But perhaps most disturbing was that the agreement was for a period of time. In other words, Iran could break out after 10 years or before if it so wished. So why would world leaders place a time limit on Iran's nuclear ambitions and capabilities? The simple answer is that if the brutal regime was not somehow overthrown by the Iranian people, world leaders would be passing the problem of a nuclear Iran onto future leaders. And Iran was quite satisfied to accept the JCPOA restrictions because it had patience, plenty of patience. When Joe Biden became president, some in the Middle East believed the new administration would bend over backwards in order to secure a new deal with Iran. But the Iranians are skilled at reading between the lines and insisted they were not ready to come to the table. In the meantime, they increased their level of enrichment to more than 60% and then boasted about it to the IAEA. Senior members of the Biden administration kept playing nice with Tehran whilst the regime made excellent progress towards attaining nuclear weapons. Instead of Western negotiators uniting and holding a clear no-nonsense policy with Iran, they themselves became sucked into a cloud of infighting with competing agendas. When Iran believed the pressure was mounting against them last September 2021, they announced that they would return to the table in Vienna on the 29th of November. However, the talks, as expected, broke down soon after starting because the Americans came to the table with the objective of convincing Iran it would not be in their interest to make a nuclear bomb. The Iranians came along only to tell the Americans that all sanctions must be lifted immediately before Iran would negotiate. Just for reference, the Trump administration placed heavy crippling sanctions on Iran after they pulled out of the JCPOA agreement in 2018. 
Since restarting negotiations last November, there have been almost a dozen rounds of nuclear talks in Vienna. On-off, on-off, on-off is the only way to describe them. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan continues to believe that it's possible to reach a diplomatic solution behind closed doors. He told the Israeli public broadcast TV news network Khan last December that, and I'm quoting now, the best way to prevent a nuclear Iran is through diplomacy, unquote. When asked if the Americans have a cutoff date, Sullivan replied, we are not circling a date in the calendar, but behind closed doors, we're discussing Iran's nuclear issue in great detail and have explained to the negotiating teams how various scenarios may play out. The Israeli defense establishment believed Iran has shortened the time it needs to accumulate enough uranium for a nuclear weapon. According to these sources, only six to eight weeks is required from the time Tehran makes the decision to become a nuclear threshold state, although the source said Iran chooses not to do so at this time. Robert Malley is the U.S. Special Representative in Vienna and is leading the negotiations. He has been described by some diplomats as the most dovish official ever seen when dealing with Iran. If Tehran also believes this, they will run circles around the Americans through their long, tiresome experience of playing the waste-crucial-time game. Not only that, but Iran will demand more and more concessions in the belief that the US will give in, which is what got the world into this problem in the first place when signing the very bad JCPOE deal in 2015. The Americans continue to insist that they are not allowing the Iranians to control the talks and will walk away from the table if necessary. But Iran doesn't seem to have received that message so far. Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, is said to be sidelined by Robert Malley, who has been able to craft his own version of the negotiations when reporting back to Secretary of State Antony Blinken. But it's widely believed that the scale of the infighting is hidden from the White House, and in particular, President Joe Biden, who is preoccupied with domestic matters and the upcoming midterm election later this year. If the impasse drags, the Iranians will strengthen their position by delaying things even further, while enriching uranium to weapons-grade fissile material. Once a proliferator reaches this threshold, it is ready to be weaponized within a very short space of time. Iran's nuclear installations are buried deep in multiple locations across the country, some of which are in civilian areas. Now, to make matters worse, U.S. intelligence agencies have assessed that Saudi Arabia is now actively manufacturing its own ballistic missile program using technology with the help of China. Last December, CNN cited multiple sources and satellite images of what appears to be a production and testing site near a town in the center of Saudi Arabia. The news network claimed that multiple U.S. officials have been briefed on classified intelligence relating to multiple large-scale transfers of sensitive ballistic missile technology between China and Saudi Arabia. Although CNN claimed to have broken the story, this is not new news. 
but the fact that this news is now in the public domain could potentially hinder efforts to convince Tehran to limit its own ballistic missile program. In the past, Saudi Arabia is known to have purchased ballistic missiles from China, but until now has never been able to build its own missile program. For several years, Saudi Arabia, and in particular, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, also known as MBS, has made considerable efforts to increase his own military program, which has been motivated by Iran's path for nuclear weapons and the fear that the US is gradually withdrawing their interest from the region. The Saudi mindset has been changed dramatically, especially since the Iranian attacks on Saudi oil facilities in September 2019. America did not respond to those attacks, but nor did the Saudis. Some have said Saudi see themselves as inferior to Iran and are therefore looking for a strong deterrent to match Tehran. Just over a year ago, another news network reported that a yellow cake factory had been discovered in Saudi Arabia. A yellow cake is a type of uranium concentrated power obtained through leach solutions. It's a step in the processing of uranium after it's been mined. The Middle East region is already in a missile arms race. And if it hasn't already started, it will very soon become a nuclear arms race under the cover of civilian nuclear development for peaceful purposes. Iran began the process. Saudi Arabia have indicated they will join the missile and perhaps nuclear arms race. Next will be the Egyptians and the Turks, who also have regional ambitions. This was always Israel's worry and concern, and Israel has been saying this to world powers for almost 20 years. A nuclear proliferation of Iran will definitely cause throughout the region a knock-on effect. Saudi Arabia always said if Iran goes nuclear, they would do the same, not just out of fear, but out of prestige and competition. Saudi believes if the Persians have nuclear weapons, we Sunni Arabs, the leader of the Arab world, must also have nuclear weapons. Iran has so far not been stopped in its goal of achieving nuclear weapons, and so the region is now witnessing the beginning of a major arms race which will turn nuclear. Some have said the horse has already bolted from the stable. But the question is, can the horse be caught in time and return back to the stable, or is it too late? Johnny Gould's Jewish State correspondent, James Marlowe. What happened over the Hanukkah bus reporting at the BBC was the very last straw. And Johnny Gould's Jewish State is now stepping up to the plate. It's time for us as an audio provider to report Israel around the world with consistency and journalistic integrity. And with your help, I'll be expanding the Israel Briefing series on my podcast. But I need your help. A one-off donation is always gratefully received, but a monthly donation really gets our service off the ground. To donate now, go to patreon.com slash johnnygould or paypal.me slash jonathanlgould. Those addresses again, patreon.com slash johnnygould or paypal.me slash jonathanlgould. For those who listen, for those who are willing to listen. 
This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State.